As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. Hello again, this is the Athletic Football Tactics podcast. Good to have you with us this week. I'm Ali Maxwell, I've got Liam Tharm, I've got Mark Carey with me, and one more, because one of our big pre-season talking points on the pod was what will Spurs look like under the management of Ange Postacoglu? How much would he change in terms of Tottenham's tactics from last season under Conte, and how quickly would he look to change things? And would it be slick and smooth or full of teething issues. We found that really interesting pre-season with two games in now. To help us answer some of these questions, we've drafted in Charlie Eccleshare, Tottenham writer for The Athletic. Hi, Charlie. Hello. How are you doing? Very well. It's still hard to comprehend how quickly the new manager has changed the mood at Tottenham. Your words, not mine. Yeah. The expectation, as you guys touched on, and everything we... Certainly I was told was that, you know, don't expect it to click straight away. It's a very different way of playing. Uh, his previous jobs, he started slowly. I uh, was nearly relegated in his first season with Yokohama. Um, but it's happened. it has happened very quickly. And yeah, we are only two games in. So it might be, I guess, like the new manager bounce, we normally think of as like more of a mid-season thing. But it might be that the results are good initially and then there's a bit of a leveling off. But yeah, so far it's been so refreshing. Um and it's great the results have been as good as the performances. Mm. Playing the way a Tottenham team should play, said James Moore on the award-winning view from the lane. It's been great to hear and read and see so much positivity. The fans seem to have bought in pretty quickly. I dare say the players have done as well. And a part of that uh, is what Postacoglu is like, quite aside from football tactics, as a communicator, uh, which is something he wrote about. Uh, I think the piece went out this morning. Genuinely, one of my favourite things I've read uh, for for some time. I'm fascinated in language and communication, shock. Um, And so I found this piece brilliant because it's all of that stuff with world experts in those fields, but through a football lens, which is (laughs) what we're here for. Um, When did you decide you needed to write this piece in particular about Postacoglu's communication skills? Soon after he joined, I did a a big backgrounder on him. And one of the things that kept coming up was that he is a really great uh, speaker. And so for the last, I don't know, however long, it's been almost two months. Mm. I've just been sort of keeping that piece ticking along and doing interviews with people about it. And I felt this was a moment because... He's just so pitch perfect in what he says. And like after the game on Saturday, he talks about 
standing on the center circle and just taking it all in and you know being so appreciative of the moment the day before he talked about a louis through podcast he'd listened to <laughs> like he just takes you in, and then he was talking about okay he was asked about an australian musician and someone said peter andre and he did a duet with carly when i come on with you no come on <laughs> you got you guys have got to open your mind man you got you got a very narrow focus <laughs> Huh? Nick Cave, thank you, Lynchy. Thank you, Jesus. Talk about open minds, the most closed minded group of individuals Jason Donovan and Peter Andre. He's got a hinterland and he's got a really good delivery. And while um, sort of doing that big piece, I was alerted to there are a bunch of videos uh, he's done giving team talks and this sort of thing. And I managed to track down the Australian te- national team in-house videographer who filmed these basically and would work with Post- Postacoglu would say to him, look, I want to do a team talk on this or a talk in a meeting. Can you go away and find some video clips for me? And there's this famous one he does where he talks to the players about finding who's the person in your life who went above and beyond for you. And he talks about how for him that person is his dad. And he says, because when we go out there tonight, they're playing not just us, they're playing all those people with us. And it's just really interesting. And I've always been very interested in rhetoric and oratory i did latin a level and you do a lot of it there with cicero and people like that if people listen to football cliches they've probably heard me talk about these sort of topics yeah so i just thought this was for me this was like the perfect piece this will mm. meld a lot of my interests and one of the people i spoke to was an expert on public speaking a guy who he runs a course on it and is the four-time uk national champion for public speaking <laughs> this is a thing brilliant wow. yeah you you got they have these competitions um Anyway, he's a, he's a four-time winner. Uh, is that he, like I had a mate who did a public speaking course to try and improve this part of him, you know, further himself, better himself. And the first class or lesson, everyone had to stand up, not knowing anyone else there. And they were given a spoon and they had to talk about the spoon right. for five minutes. Do, yeah, do you think no, that's... It, it is. <laughs> Apparently there are, there'll be things like that where you, in this competition you'll go and you'll it will be, some will be... Apparently, sometimes you're given an actual speech and you mm-hmm. have to deliver that. And other times it'll be more of that improv thing of, yeah, go and talk about a random topic. You know, he's got a very down-to-earth aspect exactly. to his personality mixed with clear authoritative yeah. personality as well. Humor too. I mean, my favorite thing about Postacoglu is his use of the word mate yeah. in, pre- in press conferences yeah. where you just think if a, if a British or an English manager used mate to that extent, it wouldn't land at all. But when he uses it, it's both... You know, it is down to earth. It lands. There's also something a little bit passive aggressive about it. Yeah. Aggressive. Scathing. But I think it's less passive aggressive because it is coming from an Australian and mate is a more <laughs> commonly... And he says it's just because he doesn't know everyone's names yet, so that's why he does it. But yeah, I mean, I've been... I've had a few mates. You've been mated? I've been mated a few times. <laughs> yeah. I can imagine that feels good. Uh, amazing piece from Charlie this morning, um, which you should go and read. I learned some new words. Bathos being one of them, um, and you can too, uh, if you head to The Athletic and read that piece. Liam, what Postacoglu is experiencing in managerial terms is an interesting circumstance, something certainly that's relevant to our interests, like we've already discussed. How quickly do you change things? How do you go about doing that? Is it possible that that could cause you problems in the short term, you know, short term pain, long term game, all that sort of stuff. And, you know, it's one that other managers like Eric Ten Hag and Mikel Arteta, for example, faced as well in the last few years. Yeah, they're good sort of case studies for this. Um, obviously, Spurs are maybe slightly different in the sense that he's had sort of a, a full pre-season there and you've obviously got the added impact now of losing Kane so early on and, and 
obviously going through preseason with Kane and then losing him, I think changes the dynamic of things. And they were so, so reliant on him last season, not just in terms of the proportion of the goals that he scored, but in their overall sort of attacking play. And they are now transitioning to try and and trying to be a more attacking team. I don't quite think that Arsenal or United had to make quite as big jumps as what Spurs have tried to do. Um, there's obviously the quite neat comparison of United having gone to Brentford uh, in game two under Ten Hag and being absolutely demolished and pulled apart in the first half. Spurs going there and controlling large parts of the game. I think as we spoke sort of uh, last week when we said that they struggled at times defensively to defend in the wide areas and they weren't perfect at Brentford are probably the hardest team to go to and play such good organised possession football they are the, the big six slayers if you will they beat the top teams mm. um, sort of regularly so it's a case I think also of finding where the players fit because remember uh, Christian Eriksen started a match day one against Brighton as false nine in Ten Hag's first game and just increasingly sort of went further down the pitch as the season went on ended up playing in um, in the pivot in midfield and from sort of looking back at Arsenal they won just two of their first seven under Arteta and ended up playing a 3-4-3 three, three all the mm. way into the cup final and for a good period he played Aubameyang off the left and they had those goals I think there was one against Liverpool in the FA Cup and against Fulham, Fulham yeah. that were like these identical build-up patterns and they got quite good at playing out that way yeah. um, there's a quote um, from Arteta in December 2020 so after he'd been in the role a while saying we want to move to a 4-3-3, but for that, you need a lot of specificity in every position. But in five or six positions, we don't have it. We're seeing now even Postecoglou experimenting in real time and sort of, you know, on his right-hand side, he went for a different wing-back or a different full-back, sorry, this time, went for a different central midfielder, that it's going to take time and performances and results, I think, do look a little bit more separate than what they maybe do at more established teams now because he just does need to start working things out in this sort of true context. I, I, do, I was thinking about this um Earlier, I think it's really interesting that comparison with Arteta because Arteta came in, obviously he had no managerial experience. Postacoglu is almost evangelical about the way he wants to play. He's uncompromising. Arteta, no one really knew. I mean, everyone assumed he was going to be a mini Pep. But actually, yeah, that FA Cup win that he had, certainly against City, it was a very um, counter-attacking setup. I mean, it was it was the back three. And that, and that was... That worked for them because they kind of had to do that at that time because they didn't really have the players to dominate games. Um, and obviously that then massively evolved over time, whereas Postacoglu's come in and basically said, this is my system. We're doing this straight away. He hasn't come in and been like, oh, we're just going to you know, evolve to that. Mm. He said, this is what we're going to do. And even in, um, after Arsenal's game against Palace on Monday night, I know they you know, had a red card and were, were down for a period of time, but Arteta after the game came out and said, I, I loved it. I really enjoyed it. Like the, I just can't imagine if Spurs were in that situation, Postacoglu would come out afterwards and say, really enjoyed all the dogged defending. Mm. There's that clip, I think, of him uh, at Celtic where he's shouting at someone for not passing forward enough. Yeah, as you say, sort of being so firmly stuck to the way that you want to play in a good and this I imagine at times in sort of two three months we might be having this this discussion about it being a bad thing because it was a similar thing when Conte first came in and having a fixed way of playing does mean you can quite quickly establish your ideals and that is great and I think they look a lot more adaptable than what they did on the Conte but you can see the same thing being thrown back in the face of what Arsenal had last season as well of okay, if you do this in two months and you go on a losing run, it's, oh, well, you're not adaptable enough. Suddenly. Yeah, where's it's that, the plan B? It's that big outcome bias of either it's a perfect plan A or you've got no room to adapt and manoeuvre. But um, the speed at which they've integrated it and even from, I was at the Shakhtar game in pre-season and even from then that seemed so well put in place and so organised and relationships take time to form. I think we're seeing that particularly out wide and Udogi and, and Son in particular, but it's definitely growing from, from where it was. Well, that was going to be my question for you, Charlie, just how much you think that 
it could work against them. If not, I mean, everything's novel at the moment, isn't it? So it, it is sort of a surprise factor, but either later in the season, as you say, Liam, or in the second season and beyond, thinking about his history as a manager as well, in terms of how many seasons he's had at each club, mm. have they sort of been found out over time? I know that obviously Celtic wouldn't be an example of that per se, but you think of maybe transition in wide areas, as you say, Liam, Brentford, they were sort of suspect in, in that sort of regard, not necessarily getting the high press right and the, the opposition being able to play out if they don't quite get it right or having pressing triggers when they're trying to play out and having the, the fullbacks tuck in. If the opposition know going into that game that that is exactly how they're going to play mm. rather than a, a pep, and we always use pep as the example of being so flexible, do you think that could work against him? Yeah, I mean, the interesting thing is that generally he's done better in his second season, certainly in the last few jobs. Um, I mean, the biggest contrast was when he was in Japan managing Yokohama and they nearly got relegated in his first season, won the league in his second. With Celtic, they won the league in the first season and the League Cup and then won the treble in his second and were more established. And that was always the sense everyone gave uh, to me with, with Spurs was that wait until the second season, then we'll really know. Obviously, it's slightly different in the Premier League because you get less time probably, you know, that there'll be less of a grace period. And what's interesting with him is he hasn't stayed anywhere, certainly at club level for that long. Mm. He's never really done more than a couple of years. And Brisbane Roy was there 2009-2012, but did a couple uh, seasons at Yokohama, two at Celtic. And also maybe it's slightly different in those other leagues where the other teams aren't quite so quick to adapt to what you're doing. I do wonder if in the Premier League, yeah, that, that might be an issue. Because as you say, even last season, Arteta's Arsenal, their biggest pro in probably the first half of the season was that they had a really settled team. That counted against them a little bit maybe once teams did become wise to it. So that will be a really interesting subplot. I mean, Thomas Frank said it on the um, in the press conference after that game on the opening weekend that basically, yeah, you know, there weren't surprises. We knew what Spurs were going to do. Obviously, it's, it can still be really hard to stop them. But I don't think he's going to compromise. I think anyone who... I, I, I agree with you, Liam, because was, I was saying this uh, on The View from the Lane last week, that there will 100% be a point, could be soon, could be a bit longer, when uh, external pundits are saying about Spurs, they, they have to compromise. I'm sorry. <laughs> and you cannot go away from home against that and be that open that will happen because they'll lose a game 2 or 3-0 against the team everyone thinks they should be but he just won't listen to that he won't that won't really be part of his thinking he's so committed to this way of playing you're listening to the Athletic Football Tactics podcast with Ali Maxwell this episode is supported by season 3 of FX's Welcome to Wrexham Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the city's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher division. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenges and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. Catch all new episodes Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. 
Hi everybody, I'm Danny Kelly, host of the Athletic's dedicated Spurs podcast, The View from the Lane. Join me, Charlie Eccleshare, James Moore, Tim Spears and Jack Pitbrook for what promises to be yet another rollercoaster season in N17. Will Ange Postacoglu bring back attacking football to the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium? Every Monday and Thursday, we'll bring you top analysis from the best journalists in the game, as well as razor-sharp insight, it says here, and of course, all the usual view from the lane, gaffes and gags. Come on, you Spurs. Makes me think of the conversation we had at the end of last week's pod about a basball crossover into football. Totally. You know, absolute buy-in, yeah. uh, no compromise, certain style of play. I mean, on the style of play, Liam, is there an extent to which the reason it feels quite extreme has to be because of where they're coming from and how they played under Conte. We spoke about it all the time last season of the uh, biggest teams in the country. They were clearly playing a way that was very different, much more reactive, seemingly with fewer attacking dimensions. And they had just like quite bizarre records at nil-nil and then coming back in the second half. And you know, clearly issues, basically. They weren't a very good team, ultimately. But they were also playing a style of play that is fairly unrecognisable now among top clubs. So is there a large extent to which they are just becoming more like the teams that they are trying to chase down? Manchester City and Arsenal and you know, Chelsea are doing similar, I guess, under Poch as well. Yeah, I, I guess so. I've got a very vivid memory of them. I think it would have been round of 16 Champions League at home to Milan. Um, one were done on aggregate. This would be the second leg just before half time, where they are camped just in a mid block for this entire half. Um, Kane is just doing shuttle runs across the pitch as Milan are switching play, and they're just no. <laughs> there is no adaptability. There is no sort of um, change. You're looking at it and you're going. They have 45 more minutes to play, but I don't see how they're going to score in this game. They did not score in in either of the two legs, so it's a case of sort of gone from I think just trying to avoid sort of complete failure and be so defensively sound first and foremost that the mistakes that they will now make are things that they would never have made last season because they were never trying to do those things. And at the same time, it's because they're willing to risk all those things to get better attacks, to play through teams, to be more attacking. And okay, that might leave you more open. I was looking at some of the defensive records of, of Postacoglu's teams and at times they looked a little bit defensively porous, but they won the majority of games by presumably outscoring the opposition rather than saying, okay, we want to be a defensively minor team first. I know that's come, kind of come full circle with Pep now where he's saying, oh, he just wants big defenders. He doesn't mm. really want those. Um, at times he's stepping one into midfield, but um, yeah, that sort of evolution. Spurs just feel like they're maybe quite literally a couple of years earlier from where Arsenal were or United um, and obviously City are much further down the line now. So they kind of become useful in terms of size of club, but also quite problematic comparisons because you can't really compare Spurs to Arsenal now or to mm-hmm. uh, Manchester United because they, they are further along. They've also had a chance to recruit. I mean, in terms of the, the change of style of play, using numbers at this stage of the season is <laughs> near redundant because, you know, I love talking about sample size, but I'm going to do it anyway. Um, and their opening game, we might have mentioned this last week, actually, but their opening game against Brentford had them record 31 sequences with nine passes or more, which was more than any game in the whole of mm-hmm. last season. So just again, when we speak about the speed of the, the change of the, the style of play, that alone is, is just so, so noticeable. I know I think it's from one of your pieces, Charlie, of just how much... Postacoglu likes to do everything with the ball. And I know that the top managers do, right? Like Tuchel said this, Pep said this in terms of we defend with the ball and we we attack obviously with the ball as well. But he said that he absolutely hates it when he doesn't feel like he's in control when his team doesn't have the ball. So there's far more intensity out of possession, but just having a longer sequence of just feeling like there's more control over 
what you're wanting to do from an attacking perspective. But then if you have the ball, of course, the opposition doesn't. So from a defensive perspective as well, there's just such a, a clear change. And we're only two games in, which I think is really interesting. Charlie wrote a really excellent piece on this and it's something I think we need to dive into more in terms of the the assessment of the fullbacks playing inside a lot. It was particularly Pedro Porro. Um, and there was quite a good Monday night football breakdown of this as well. I'm not sure I agreed entirely with what Gary Neville had to say about sort of playing the fullbacks there and that he's obviously correct. He's a much better player than I ever was. Um, when you're saying about sort of fullbacks playing inside, it's because they Important can't. caveat. <laughs> of course. <laughs> just I think to a, lot of, unsure. a lot of us weren't um, entirely sure, yeah. but now we are. Well, I feel sort of compelled to do that if I'm going to sort of pick apart his, his point. But when you're saying that, you know, fullbacks play at fullback because if they were taller they'd play at centre-back if they are better they'd be a winger or they would play in midfield um, that probably was true when he was playing and sort of 10, 20 years ago but I don't necessarily think it's the case now it's one of the positions that has evolved the most definitely physically there's some of I think the most athletic players on the pitch to cover so much ground um, quite often you're getting fullback and central midfielder rotations anyway that it's become one of the most creative positions on the pitch, particularly in the sort of past five to 10 years. So I'm not sure I entirely agree with that now that it's inherently problematic. And there's also the points about them now playing in a position to pin someone inside and make space like Petro Pro was. I thought he had a really good game actually, despite some mistakes, but um, he was also doing a lot of work to pin Mason Mountain inside and Pavisar was roaming out on the right. Just to pick you up on something here so you can explain it to me and, and maybe some of the listeners, when you say yeah. pin Mount inside, yeah. is that... W- with Spurs in possession. Correct. So that's a movement that Porro would make inside the pitch to pull Mount inside with him and open up passing lanes maybe out wide to, was it Saar? Yes, yeah, so, so Mason Mount, the left side of central midfielder for Manchester United, this man marking Pedro Porro, so he was tracking him. Uh, and on the right side, Destiny Doggy, Spurs' left back. Anthony had dropped deeper to defend him, so United kind of adjusted their 4-3-3. They kind of dragged it around to make a 4-4-2 to match up Spurs. And it means that when you've got one player man marking, they're just going to follow the player that they're marking. So if the fullback comes inside, and Alexander Sinchenko has spoken mm. about this in really good depth, that it will pull a player inside and suddenly you've just got loads of passing angles from centre-back to winger or loads of space for the outside central midfielder, in this case, Pape Sarr, to roam out to the right. You're almost doing it at times to not actually try and play through those players. Um, Jeremy Carrick made a great point on Monday Night Football that Pep first did that, and this isn't a thing Poscocli was learnt from Pep, but this is something Pep did first to stop counterattacks in the Bundesliga. It's a form of rest defence to have players inside yeah. to congest those central spaces, and then you can access the wingers better. And when, in my opinion, Kulusevski and Son are probably, in Kane's absence, two of the most creative players in that Spurs team, you want to get the ball into them more. It makes perfect sense to me. I think it's so impressive that Pedro Porro was bought as a flying attacking wing back for, yeah. from Sporting, and he's become a, an inside fullback. I know we said we're not going to call them inverted fullbacks anymore, but the transformation, it's this still are teething problems, and we've you can speak about that, and you mentioned it before, Liam. But to, to be so contrasting in your style is highly impressive. I think the, the Gary Neville point you made, I do kind of see his point in that the physicality is, yeah, you've you got to be far more, you've got to be far more kind of flexible in your attributes as a fullback. I think the, the same was sort of seen with Trent Alexander-Arnold in the weekend just gone as well, where I just think the, the having the back to play sometimes is things that, especially Porro, because he's always thinking of having the pitch in front of him, I think is something where it was kind of caught out a little bit because mm. there's a lot of blindside runs and there's just positions on the pitch that you're just simply not used to quite as much irrespective of your physical attributes or technical attributes simply because of the position that you have most often played. But to your point and to the point I guess I'm making is that he seems to be adapting to it really quite well in yeah, the early stages. He is. I mean, I think 
So I rewatched the game and to the point that the piece Liam refers to, and it was really, really instructive. And I didn't actually go into the re. I, I wanted to rewatch it because I thought I'm sure loads will come out because they tend to. It's really, I think it's a really good exercise. But the thing that did jump out at me straight away was Poro and how much better actually he was than he was perceived. And I think uh, because of the way we over-indexed two moments where he lost the ball and Neville jumped on them. And I think Neville went in, a lot, as a lot of people would, with a lot of scepticism about this system of playing inside fullbacks. Uh, and so the moment it didn't work, and we've seen it before, it's like when goalkeepers play out and they're not used to it mm-hmm. uh, and it might be fine 90% of the time, but they'll, they'll have one shaky moment. They might not even lose the ball, but they'll have a shaky moment. And I was like, that, see, that's why you don't do it because it, it's, it's too risky. But the thing All it is, takes like, is the crowd to go, ooh. Yeah, exactly. And I think it's because a, a theory of mine with the crowd anyway is because a lot of football we can relate to because we've done it. Mm. Most amateur footballers have never played out from the back. So it's terrifying. It's like watching a tightrope walker. And I think it's the same with inside fullbacks now. A lot of people just aren't used to it and it's scary. But you could literally, that chance that Liam refers to, which came just before, uh, in the very first minute was exactly the benefits of a fullback inverting because you had that overload with Saren Kudusevsky. And Kudusevsky had about four or five goes in the first half where he basically received the ball in space because of what Poro and Sar were doing. Mm. And it was working perfectly. But yes, the, the receiving the ball on the half turn is difficult, clearly. I also think there's, I was talking about this earlier, there's such a lag where position firstly there's always an assumption that everyone wants to play centrally and that central is like the best positions to play at also there's like a lag and you know with fullbacks we still obsess over he could play in central midfield Mm. he's such a good fullback it's like doing his academy days yeah it's like but he doesn't want to because his fullback's a better position and it's more suited to him look at someone like Zinchenko uh, or Trent now what he's doing um, so I I, but yeah I think to Mark's point as well the, the adaptation from Porro has been impressive and it was interesting with Postacoglu during the preseason tour in Singapore, we asked him, like, you know, could do you think you could play Udogi and Poro together? Because I think to most people's minds, it's kind of like, that's crazy. You know, they're both so attacking. And he was kind of like, he genuinely seemed a bit amused by the question. He was like, well, yeah, I'm like, that would be amazing. Well, what, kind of like, what's the problem there? Thanks for the idea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's like, of, of course I would. It's a complete tangent, really, but... Um... Anyone who sort of wants to improve their way of looking at football tactically, re-watching a game, particularly when if it's a game that you're initially emotionally attached to, if it's a team that you support, or there's just so much you miss in real time. And there's a great research paper from 1980s by a pair called Franks and Miller, and this is in the academic sense, basically the justification if you go into any performance analysis paper, this will likely be referenced in there somewhere. Um, that found that coaches can recall just 42% of performance accurately and there have been numerous replicating papers since that have found similar things and that is of course with top level coaches. So That's really interesting. Do you know what it does as well? Is it... it- it gives you a sort of superiority over someone if you've rewatched it. It's a bit like when you talk about a film and you're like, oh, have you, have you read the book version? <laughs> yeah. Oh, right, okay. No, because in the book, it's a bit different. It's kind of like that when you rewatch the game, it just gives you that little bit of an edge. So for, for that as well, it's worth it. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Well, luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? 
Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Tell me what you thought about Spurs uh, defensively in the first half, having watched it back and watched it twice, which gives you twice the authority <laughs> on this. Uh, United had 14 shots in the first half yeah. and you know quite a few moments where it felt like they were they were looking pretty dangerous. Um, you know, from a Spurs point of view, why did that amount of shot? I think it was the most shots United have had in a half maybe away from home for many, many years. One of those stats. Yeah, yeah, One yeah. of those types of yeah, stats. Yeah, so how, how well, did that come about? A think? couple of things. One, which I found quite funny, is that Mason Mount is always held up as a... He doesn't seem to be doing anything, but if you watch really closely, he's actually really, really good. <laughs> to be fair to him, on the rewatch, he was quite good. He was certainly a lot better, and I kind of hated myself for it. He did then fade, to be fair. That that did come through. So there were a couple of things. He and United did actually press quite well. The other thing was that Basuma was quite often isolated. And if you watch the chance where Rashford goes through in the first half and Vicario saves it well from him, that comes about after a passage where Basuma's almost like a piggy in the middle. There, there's like four passes where they're just passing around. He's on his own. He's a single press. And and I guess that's when you see the benefits in possession when you've got Saar pulling all the way out to the right. But then there were times where he was isolated. And I think that's something... I mean, he's going to have to get through a huge amount of defensive work. Yeah. Um, you know, you need to be so good, you know, to be someone like Rodri to play that sole pivot kind of role. So that was something that really jumped out was um, he, he was quite isolated. The, the United press was interesting because... It was both good and very bad for Spurs in the sense it was good that the style they want to play is in infinitely better, in my opinion, when a team presses you because it suddenly gives you the spaces. The big thing at Brentford was playing a lot more in the final third, trying to break down the low block and the goals ended up scoring. One was off a set piece, one was a screamer from outside the box. Here you had Pabisar sort of, you know, crashing into the box with a late run. Ben Davis, your inside fullback, getting into the box as well for, for the second. So they're much better sort of, I think, what we'd call sort of bait and switch attack. So playing heavily down one side, keeping it that way, then playing really nice diagonals, mm -hmm. playing nice switches, and then suddenly you've got time and space on the opposite side. But I didn't think the high line was perfect. I think I counted three times in the first 20 minutes that Rashford got in behind and had sort of 1v1s. I think Vicario made a really good save on the angle, sort of 1v1. Um, and there was a similar header from Bruno Fernandes that he puts over. There wasn't a whole lot to pick out. So that it was more occasious. The line was quite high and flat a lot of the time that mm -hmm. the defenders were quite square to the ball. They weren't necessarily in a position where um, they're sort of ready to, ready to run. But I think it's also worth noting that they've played probably the two of, if not the best counter-attacking teams in the league in their first two games. It looks worse statistically than maybe the performance was. I think if you looked and watched the halfback, you felt Spurs had enough control. Um, there's obviously the chance early in the second half where um, I think they've just gone one that up and then Anthony cuts a shot off the post. So mm. you do start to get into sort of fine margins territory. But there was never a point where I felt like Spurs were repeatedly under siege. They just never really had continued defensive control, um, at least when they were out of possession. The high line's interesting to me, though. I was going to get your thoughts on it, Charlie, because you think about Christian Romero obviously playing in a three last season. He was very front-footed, and he is in his in his nature, but he was also able to be, allowed to be, knowing that he had, obviously, Eric Dyer more, more century to him, and there was two central defenders, and he could be the spare and just go high when he needed to. Do you think that, speaking about it before, in terms of opposition, knowing maybe eventually to pull spares from side to side, essentially, if you could maybe have a centre-forward who you know that Christian Romero is going to go with and then you maybe have a winger mm. going in behind. That high line and that space in behind could be picked a little bit knowing Romero's tendency yeah. to step out and be quite front-footed. Yeah, and Van der Ven as well is so quick mm. that he's happy to, you know, he wants to play 
that really high line. And I think that will be transformative that they can play with that high line. But it does come with a risk, no question. And there were times when United picked it. Um, and that, and there was a moment as well where Van der Ven came charging out and uh, Rashford nutmegged him in the first half. But Postico, that's again, that's something Postacoglu is not going to compromise on. You know, he he just, you know, he really wants them uh, to push out. I have to say as well, Romero on the rewatch was really, really good. Much better, like quietly, really, really solid in a way, like, because he normally is very noticeable in everything he does because he's he is so front-footed. But I thought he played with, when he can control his aggression, that's when he's at his best. He was my one big sort of worry for Spurs in the system in terms of just his sort of, I think, tendencies defensively that uh, in the Shakhtar game in pre-season, and this is a pre-season game, he got pulled out wide at one point to defend a passing behind and just absolutely smashed someone. I think he got booked for it, which you like, <laughs> getting booked in a pre-season friendly, you've you know, you, you done particularly well. And of course, he had quite a bad record, I think, post-World Cup in terms of bookings and sending off, sendings off, um, including the, the Milan game and the Champions League. So mm. it's not yet transpired. I mean, whether that, will happen I don't know and I'm not wishing that upon him it's just I think when you do have such aggressive centre backs in a two that you know just can be a bit reckless sometimes um, I think it's a real shame because he's really enjoyable to watch in possession and as Charlie says when you get those games where he controls himself he's one of the top centre backs I think in the entire division and you almost forget how young he is at times as well that he's not exactly um, you know in his peak years so that is something that might come to fruition in later games um, but he's been excellent so far Okay, so loads of tweaks, uh, both in terms of what Postacoglu is asking his defenders to do, central defenders and fullbacks. Um, big roles already for Bissouma in midfield. Uh, and then Sarah, of course, having a, a real breakout performance in the United game as well. Uh, in terms of the front four, post Kane, in terms of what Postacoglu wants his team to look like in that final action, in that final third, any patterns from what we've seen so far, Charlie? Yeah, I mean, lots of it is about isolating, you know, when you play with those inside fullbacks is about creating space so that your wingers are one-on-one -on -one with the opposition fullbacks. And we've seen that loads. I mentioned it, Kuliseski had a lot of those opportunities in the first half, in particular against United. And I think what will be really, really key is the extent to which he and Son can rediscover the form they had, not last season, the one before, when they were both devastating. I mean, Son won the golden boot. Kuliseski was incredible, really. And what was his first half season? But it's not easy. I mean, you're you need to be you need to be backing yourself to win one on ones, basically. And I, I felt Kudasevsky was a little bit safe sometimes. Uh, he looked a little bit uh, like he didn't want to lose the ball. If he can get that confidence back, then I think that's huge for Spurs. And and likewise, Son, who played last year with an injury for a lot of it. But that's what they're trying to do the whole time. And then often what Postecoglou teams what they want to do is get one winger crossing in, the other wingers attacking the back post. But if they can keep create, I mean, I guess it's like creating chances for strikers. You know, they always say you want to be getting the opportunities and they are. They're getting the opportunities to run opposition fullbacks. And that's where it helps having those inside fullbacks and having someone like Saar come along and, and sort of uh, occupy one of the other defenders. I do think they're struggling for box presence a little bit in terms of Richarlison. He just doesn't seem to be having a huge number of touches in, in open play, which I think is kind of a product of sort of the Postecoglou system. I think it was the same um, with sort of Celtic as forwards there last season that they tend to be one of the lower uh, sort of touch players on the team, despite obviously being such a high position team. The second goal was a nice example of how Spurs to Salah sort of really changed where um, it's on starts on a transition. Madison actually declines to play a three ball to Son who looks quite visibly frustrated for a, a few seconds. I don't know whether he thought he was offside, but even that principle of, you know, everyone sort of screaming out any chance you get to play a three ball to Son and let him attack space, you you would do it. And then they recycle it. They play it around to the right. There's a really nice sort of pattern um, where they play up from Romero. They set it back and they 
hit that big switch to Perisic. Um, they can really get those um, those fullbacks at times as well as the wingers into those advanced positions. Um, and it's then a discussion, and we sort of said it last week about it's good when you're getting players on the ball in the box, but at times, do you always want your fullbacks in there? Mm. You know, the, it has resulted in the goal, but I think Davis ends up really sort of miss miss skewing the shot, and it goes in off Lissandro Martinez. So there's sort of maybe some more tedious points that my coach sat on there of saying it's effective because we've got the ball into the box, but we don't really have our best creative players there to sort of, I think there's only one other player in the box. So there's maybe work to be done on how you get people to flood the box late. You get those wingers sort of running in. I didn't think Son did that very well against Brentford. Um, but again, in terms of against Brentford, they, they played up against Rico Henry on the left and against Manchester United was uh, Aaron Wan-Bissaka on the right. So they've played against some really good 1v1 defenders, I think, which also could be more difficult. They almost need to play a system that is a bit more similar to theirs that is going to not use fullbacks in that sort of traditional way and defensively 1v1 because that will sort of limit their threats and as, as Charlie says it's good having the opportunities 1v1 but if you're playing against some of the best 1v1 defenders then that's a lot harder to do. I mean on the note of Richarlison having a box presence he's low volume in his touches but I guess Charlie is that his role in a Postacoglu team to sort of pin the centre-backs occupy the centre-backs you don't necessarily need to be the one to I mean ideally you want him to score goals but you don't necessarily be the, need to be the one to take a load of touches but if you've got those wide players isolating the fullbacks in a 1v1 we saw Kulisevsky get to the byline I think that was for for Saar's goal when you've got kind of late runs into the box from midfielders or fullbacks that Richarlison is still fulfilling the role that Postacoglu is asking him to do even if he's not being the one to be the prolific goal scorer which Ideally, you would like him to be and you do want a goal scorer as well. But those runs maybe from cutbacks or late runs into the box, as long as you're getting goal scoring chances, it doesn't necessarily have to be from your number nine. Yeah, I think that is true. Um, it can be a thankless task, mm. that role. And again, talking about like how roles have evolved, we always thought of striker as being like the sexiest, most rewarding role. But as we've seen with, the, you know, we think of that Firmino, Mane, uh, Salah. Firmino was the centre forward, but he would always be the one who would score the fewest goals. Um, you know, there have been Pep teams like that as well before Haaland and after Aguero. So I think there is an element to which, yeah, he, a lot of his job is about occupying defenders, occupying space. I mean, he he dropped in a few times and linked play reasonably well, but he also, there was one for the Anthony chance, he drops in to get the ball and Martinez just cleans him out basically. And you couldn't help but think if that's Kane, he's probably going to win a foul because <laughs> he was so good at doing that. Or if he doesn't, he'll hold him off and play an incredible switch of play off either foot. Uh, you know, that's Richardson is, is not going to do that. Um, I think for him as well, like his own feeling of self-worth, a goal would make a really big difference. I know he was pretty frustrated. Um, you could see that, couldn't you, when he came off and he's talking to Emerson Royale and he's clearly... He's livid. <laughs> yeah, he's clearly pretty pissed off. And he said that to Brazilian broadcasters after the game. You're right. It is. You can see how it's a difficult role and a frustrating role, even just from a purely selfish point of view and you know strikers are meant to be selfish and they're the ones that only care about scoring goals etc all, all old cliche stereotype stuff but if a team's attack is so heavily based on the wide forwards their 1v1 ability and ideally cutting in and getting good shooting opportunities uh, or you know if not going down the line and, and and cutting it back or fizzing it across the face like not much of that is designed for you to Mm. be the one on the end of it so you just end up making you know we're talking about occupying defenders and occupying space it's not sexy is it, no. it it's like for Brazilian you know, as well ball to, ball to Kuliszewski's feet 1v1 Richarlison has to make three separate runs little darting runs try and do something the ball's probably never going to get anywhere near it <laughs> I think it's also worth just noting the fact that 
Kane scored 43% of Spurs' goals last season. That was the most of any player in the league, even more than Haaland's proportion of goals to Manchester mm. City. So the bar for Richarlison, I think, is set just ridiculously way too unachievably high, regardless of how good he is. It, I think last season was also a result of Son and Kulisevsky not having the form that they've had previously. And really, you could say if three of them got 10 goals each, that would actually replace Kane's goals from last season. and feels like a much more achievable bar and just a more balanced attack because the whole point now of the system is we're not relying on one individual to play through balls and to score goals and to hold up our play. We've got a more balanced attack. We can create chances against different teams in different ways um, and through different sides of the pitch and through different personnel when you drop in players and you bring them out. And a lot of the creative passing burden that Kane has left behind can be shouldered by James Madison on, on early evidence, Charlie. Yeah, I mean, he's been so good in both games. Um, I've said this before, but he, you know, you sometimes get new signings, they just feel, they click instantly, they feel like they've been there for ages, that they just feel right, and he's definitely in that category. He's come in and made a huge difference and has shouldered a lot of that creative burden, and I think we'll continue to do so. And it's why this injury that we're worried about and that we'll get a formal update on tomorrow uh, is preoccupying Spurs fans, I think, so much because he's made such a good start, and with Kane gone... He is that, mm. the guy you look to to create chances. I think he's the technical leader for this team as well. He's one of the vice captains. Uh, and they've got a bunch of central midfielders, but replacing him would be difficult. I mean, could it, one thing that's been suggested, could Kulisevsky come in and play that role and then they play someone else out wide, maybe Manuel Solomon? Um, but it's a it's a fairly specialised role. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I think Madison has, has made the Kane departure that little bit more palatable. So we've had two games in which they've played Brentford away, very tough test. Manchester United at home, tough test. They've come out with four points. And, and Liam, the next few matches for Spurs, we're going to learn even more about Postacoglu and his style of play and what's working you know, definitively and, and again, which areas they may be tested. Yeah, they've probably got some harder defensive blocks to come up against now. They've got Bournemouth away next up, um, who high-press Liverpool really, really well at Anfield. So that will be a really interesting test. Um, they go to Fulham in the Cup, um, who of course had a fantastic mid-block for almost the entirety of last season, playing a, a very similar way. Um, they go to Burnley, and then they've got Sheffield United at home, which will be, I think, one of the most difficult defensive blocks to break down because they will go 5-3-2. It will be very much a 5-3-2, not a 3-5-2 very similar to how they had to try and break Brentford down and then straight after that they go into a North London derby uh, and then they face Liverpool which feel like two really big litmus tests of how this team can play in big games I think it's also worth noting that these have been two really really young Spurs teams in terms of well one Premier League experience but also just age fundamentally um, only Arsenal have had younger starting 11s in both games this season than Tottenham and their two starting 11s had average ages of 25.2 and 25 which are among the top six or the six youngest of any of the starting 11s in the Premier League so far this season and I know you take Kane out of the team does make it younger anyway he would have upped that a little bit but um, Spurs were the fourth oldest in the league last season and that is not a predictive success at all when you look at who finished where in their average ages but um, I think Postacoglu has mentioned that a lot about he's particularly happy with how the team is playing because they've got young players or they've got players that are making debuts so I mean yeah they had three players in their first game playing their first ever match in the Premier League and one of those was their goalkeeper, one was a centre-back, one was their left-back. That's pretty um, kind of mm. high-risk stuff. Then Madison's making his debut for the club. Obviously, he's a lot of experience. That's four debutants. Then Saar comes in at the weekend. He'd started two Premier League games before um, before the United one. So it, it is. And, and, and what's interesting as well with um, 
with, with the point about the type of opposition they've played. I know at Spurs, the, there's there's a kind of excitement of what they'll be like against a team who attacks them because mm. it will be very different. Um, and obviously, yeah, Brentford are one of the, as you say, one of the toughest teams to play uh, in that regard. So I guess that's another subplot maybe to that North London derby because Arsenal will attack them. I mean, that game will, will be... Because I think, they, yeah, the next three games against uh, Bournemouth, Burnley, Sheffield United, and, you know, they, in theory, could be undefeated from those. They could, they could win all three, which does then set up that um, North London derby in September very nicely. And in the next week or so, the transfer window is still open and Daniel Levy will be pretending that he doesn't have £100 million burning a hole in his pocket i realize that's not how transfer fees are done these days um but uh what do you expect the last week of the window to look like do you think Postacoglu is a manager that is demanding of his board of his owners in terms of getting players in he strikes me as a guy who just wants to work with the group mate yeah he's quite straight talking i mean i think he'll he'll say i've been pretty clear about what i want they they want and need another attacker um they're definitely one short in that regard and whether that's Brennan Johnson who's primarily a winger who can play centrally or it's a forward who can also play out wide I mean I think now most teams have more of that kind of rotating cast of forwards who can play in a number of positions to give them that flexibility but that's definitely a priority for them as the, as the transfer window ends and also change around at centre-back because they've got all of Tanganga, Sanchez and Dyer. they would be open to selling but obviously, if they were to do that, they need to bring someone in. And also, it's partly they want to bring someone in, but they can't bring someone in until they've moved on some of those players. So uh, outgoing is a big priority for them as well over the next week or so. Yeah, I mean, make what you will of sort of transfer links and rumours. I personally quite despise them, but I thought that seeing Fuller and Balogun connected to Spurs was um, interesting. The sort of a, a profile of forward they might go for, very much a, a box forward in France last season. Um, scored a real nice sort of variety of goals, a lot of one-touch finishes, left foot, right foot header, you know, albeit a, a more transitional team and what Spurs are now. But I thought it's an interesting comparison to to Brennan Johnson, who I think is is excellent, but did a lot of his best work, I think, playing off Tyro Awani at Forest, almost playing him and Morgan Gibbs-White as two number 10s. I think he's great and he's electric, but he might almost suit the winger role more than sort of playing what the Madison role is. So whether he can improve his possession game, you know, that, that remains to be seen again. He's a he's a young player that would fit that sort of uh, recruitment from Spurs in that regard um, and looks really exciting. But yeah, I think maybe some more depth at number nine. Um, however they go about doing that is, I, I think for me, that would be the first place I'd start. In terms of the depth in wide areas, we've obviously spoken about Kulisevsky and Son. I don't know, other than Manor Solomon, I don't know whether there's really anyone else yeah. who could do that. So maybe strength in, in that area as well. Brian Hill when he's fit. Yeah, that's a good yeah, good example as well. Um, one player I thought it could be a sensible transfer, there's no sort of rumours attached to it, I thought would be Bradley Barkala uh, at Lyon. He's a really good kind of tricky winger, um, quite pacey, really good in his off-ball running. He's got 0.8 goal involvement, so goals and assists per 90 last season, which is pretty strong. So really good output. Um, five goals and eight assists, but he's only 20 years old. And I thought he could just, he'd be the sort of the profile of player that yeah. could quite suit Spurs. And I know that he can play off the left and on, off the right as well. So that could be, you know, the type of profile of player. Quite hypothetical, Charlie, but do you get the sense that it would be more likely to be a early 20s, grow and develop, you know, bright young thing rather than, let's get a peak age player with Premier League experience like James Madison and let's maybe spend a lot of money on them. 
Yes, although, I mean, one that they are looking at and have looked at is Ivan Tony for January. That would be the one who fitted more with the, you know, big money ready-made. But I don't think they're going to just rush into signing that kind of player. I think it will be someone who's younger. I mean, the other one they've been linked with a lot and are interested in is Gift Orban. As ever with that kind of signing, it's his numbers are incredible, but it's how much can that translate? Mm. But I think it'll be someone more in that kind of mould. Uh, someone as well who's adaptable and wants to play this kind of football. They're not going to go, they've been linked with Lukaku. Well, that's not going to happen. You know, that's probably like the the other extreme, I yeah, guess. Yeah. You know, someone who's very experienced uh, and is, you know, predominantly about scoring goals. Um, I think it will be someone who's more versatile and can play in a number of roles. Hello, listeners. If you're someone who is just too busy for a regular length podcast in the morning, we have something for you. The Daily Football Briefing brings you bang up to date with the biggest football stories in just over 10 minutes. Whether it's David Ornstein on the latest big signing or Matt Slater on a takeover saga that won't go away, we'll bring you right up to speed all before you've finished your first coffee of the day. Listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and all the usual platforms and make sure to like and subscribe so you don't miss a single episode. One departure this summer that remains to be seen of its impact was the set-piece coach, Gianni Vio, uh, who Mark Carey was able to sit down with uh, to chat about the other day. That's a bit of fun. You must have been pretty chuffed to get that, that access. Uh, how did the discussion go? Really good. So, so insightful. Um, he was really good with his time and just being able to get an insight into... Yeah, all of the work that he does. We didn't go through every routine because I come <laughs> to understand that there's upwards of four or 5,000 routines that he does. But uh, we spoke about, obviously, specifically with Spurs last season, how much they profited from, especially with corners, um, balls to the, the near post, flicked on for a back post, which they did against Wolves, Newcastle and Chelsea, I believe, um, and strength in that area and just how much they were one of the best, they were the best uh, in the Premier League in terms of per set piece, how many goals um, they scored. Let's hear it in Vio's own words. It's really my dream to go with one club and to have a, a contract like, like a striker, no, like a coach. But uh, this is my dream. <laughs> I would like to go to the, to the club. Uh, sorry, I am a striker. Uh, I am a 15 goal striker. I think uh, in the future, all all the team need one set pieces coach because a set pieces is a game into the game. It's completely different because the ball is stopped. We decide with the taker, we decide how many players go in the box and we decide also the space to attack, the timing, all change, all change. It's a different game into the game. Now is also my job, but uh, I don't consider the job because uh, I work uh, 37 years in the bank. The bank don't know, but I work uh, <laughs> 37 years. But the statistics said that 30% uh, or more goal is uh, set pieces uh, for or against. If uh, you don't train, you don't use this 30%, you don't use all the power of uh, your car. I looked into the numbers and Tottenham last season had 
17.1 set pieces per goal, and that was the best in the Premier League. First of all, you must be very proud of that. Maybe I am a lucky man because uh, we, we last year we don't had a lot of training, but we scored a lot of goals. My first uh, experience with the Italian national team, we won the European. I think uh, I am lucky, but uh, to be lucky is a quality. Wow. Uh, because sounds like it. Because uh, because uh, really, I don't think uh, we scored a lot of goals last year. We 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 was the first in the table, but uh, it's no it's not up to me. It's because uh, really our player was really strong. Two games worth of set pieces isn't much, but Spurs have scored a set piece goal already. 11 set-piece shots so far. Only one team have, have taken more through two games. Charlie clearly lost something big in terms of Harry Kane and his ability to get first contact both going forward and also defending in his own box. Um, but they certainly gained something in, in Madison's delivery. Yeah, it's a shame that Madison and Vio never got to work together. I mean, Vio was loved by the fans, honestly. And you, you quote in the piece the Kulisevsky bit after, I think it was when they beat Wolves last season with one of those set-piece goals and him saying, like, give the man a pay rise. Yeah. <laughs> uh, he gen he really was, like, a fan's favourite. So I love reading Mark's interview. Um, but, yeah, I mean, Madison came, it has come in and you do just, there's that little frisson of excitement whenever they get a set-piece. And Spurs as well, bear in mind, have an uneasy relationship with corners i mean for years there christian erickson hmm. who there was this sort of culture war about his near or not even a war because it was almost unanimous everyone was so frustrated by the fact he his corners wouldn't be the first man obviously as i'm sure vio would tell you that's the area where you want to that's where most corner goals are scored from is if you get there's a spot isn't there where if you can hit it you've got a really good chance of scoring from normally because you'll get because it enables you to get that first contact yeah but it became such a gripe uh amongst Tottenham fans. It was interesting though, because since chatting with, with Gianni, I have had a more watchful eye over every set piece across the Premier League, but specifically with the Manchester United game, there did seem to be a replication of that. Madison taking it, Richarlison was the one who peeled over to the, the back post. So the routine did seem to be similar. So I suppose, you know, he's shown them the playbook from, yeah. from last season. So it's not like they don't know what to do. They've got a largely a similar set of players. So I'm sure they are still using those routines. And because I was watching on, it did seem to be mm. that the, the patterns were quite similar to last season. So with a set piece taker as, as strong as Madison, you know, look out for them. And although he left in the summer, I think I'm right in saying he's not like attached to Conte necessarily. He's not sort of necessarily stuck with him. So very much a, a free agent. Yeah, he signed off by saying, if a, if you know any Premier League clubs who, who want a 15-goal striker, then give me a call. So I think he's he's 70 years old, available for work. And he's just so, he exudes such enthusiasm when you talk to him about set pieces. And considering, as he mentioned, just how important, how much of a big part of the game they are, how still kind of to this day unappreciated they are. So um, any opportunity to get an edge, which we're all about sort of discussing on this podcast, um, then then it's so key to do. And he's a real big advocate of that. You can get an edge on football content by reading The Athletic. <laughs> Head to theathletic.com forward slash tactics. You can read Mark sitting down and chatting with Jenny Vio. You can read Charlie, all things Spurs, but particularly that piece I mentioned about Postacoglu, the communicator. I'm sure Liam's doing some good stuff on there as well. Uh, thank you so much for listening this week. It's been great fun to hear about uh, and, and delve into Postacoglu's Spurs. We'll be back again next week, so don't miss it. The Athletic Football Tactics Podcast. The Athletic.